Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. On this episode, I talk to director Jennifer Brea. Her film, Unrest, is a personal exploration of a mysterious illness that affects over a million people around the world, including her. You've probably heard the term chronic fatigue syndrome, but many people feel that name is misleading and stigmatizing. I'll let Jennifer pronounce the more official name. Myalgic encephalomyelitis. The abbreviation is ME. Jennifer first experienced the disease in her late 20s. She was a graduate student at Harvard, about to get married to her husband, Omar. She got a terrible fever that left her dizzy for weeks at a time. Doctors made widely varying diagnoses. It really wasn't until about a year and a half after that first infection that I started to develop severe neurological problems. And within about a month, um, became completely bedridden. And at that point, I knew that something was deeply wrong. Jennifer started keeping a video diary that she incorporates into unrest. I had no idea if it would be months or years or decades. It was like I had died, but was forced to watch as the world moved on. In the film, she not only documents her own experience, she reaches out to other people affected by ME, often interviewing them by video conference. Her film shines a light on this overlooked population who are sometimes misunderstood by healthcare providers and even their own families. Unrest had its premiere in January 2017 at the Sundance Film Festival. That's when we recorded this interview. Jennifer still struggles with ME and is confined to a wheelchair, but she's found certain drug regimens that help, and she toured for the film's theatrical release this fall. Unrest is now available on digital platforms. This year, 170 documentary features qualified for the Oscars. The Academy's documentary branch reduces that number to its annual shortlist of 15 films. Unrest made it onto the shortlist as a true underdog without the backing of a big company like Netflix or Amazon. In this interview, Jennifer describes how she went from being an untrained filmmaker to pulling off this impressive work. I started by asking why she doesn't like the term chronic fatigue syndrome. I think because the sort of common... Um, layperson's understanding of fatigue is, you know, oh, we all get tired from time to time and um, people for a variety of reasons, whether it's an illness or just a particularly stressful moment in time, um, you know, can feel run down. And that's really not what this disease is. Um, it's a, a sort of defect in your fundamental energy metabolism. And for people who are on the sort of moderate to severe end of the spectrum as I am, that might not even be the symptom that we find most, you know, troubling or or kind of limiting. I, for example, um, have a condition that about 80% of people with ME have, which is that um, I have something called postural orthostatic tachycardia or POTS, which means that 
my blood just rushes to the bottom of my feet all of the time and I have a hard time keeping it up at my heart and my brain. And so like that, that's like much more troubling to me. It's a disease that really steals lives. And, and so um, I think that a large part of the reason why it hasn't been researched and it hasn't been given the proper attention and investment is in part because of the name, is because of that stigma. And I also think in part because the majority of people who get it are women. At what point did you decide you want to make a film about this? I um, I started filming myself before I knew it was a film. I started filming myself on my iPhone because I was, um, I think when I became bedridden and I didn't have a name for what was happening to me and doctors were telling me that it was, wasn't real or it was in my head or that I wasn't sick. Um, I felt profoundly isolated because I couldn't even explain to my friends, to my community, what was happening, let alone to myself. And so I needed a way to sort of make sense um, of that experience. And I'd always been someone who would journal or write for myself, um, but I had lost the ability to write. So I would write like a sentence um, uh, of an email and then I would pass out for four hours and I, I would try to write and I would make these sort of nonsense word substitutions. I would, I would write a paragraph and I would look, look back and read it and it would make no sense. Mm. And so um, I had a friend who's a writer who said, you know, one day you'll get better and you'll write a book. So just start, you know, documenting yourself and um, uh, and and what you're feeling now because you'll want that later. Um, and so I started filming myself and it was really this way to kind of process these really difficult emotions around, around what that was like. And um, it wasn't really until, I guess, sort of two things happened. One, um, I went online and found this whole community of people who were also homebound and bedridden and had been similarly abandoned by um, by medicine. And that, I think, helped me see that there was this much larger story here. Mm-hmm. But it was also this moment that I was in a doctor's office and I took out my phone because I was trying to describe to him in words what was happening to me when I was too sick to get into the office, when I was at home, you know, at 11 o'clock at night, collapse on the floor, unable to move, unable to speak. And I, I could say that to him. And in his mind, he would say, oh, okay, like you have a headache or, you know, mm-hmm. or something totally r- ridiculous. But I took out my phone and I showed him. I said, no, look, this is what it's really like. And that completely changed the conversation. And that's when I started to think about the fact that if I wanted to tell the story, it had to be visual. And that a large part of the reason why this has been allowed to happen is that doctors, you know, our neighbors, our our own families, like literally can't see us. And they can't see that 25% of people who are homebound are bedridden. And so I thought if we can bring cameras into our homes and into these intimate spaces, that that might begin to sort of change the story. Hmm. You would never set out to be a filmmaker, you never trained to be a filmmaker, or, or filmmaking kind of came to you out of necessity? You know, I think um, I, I didn't really understand any of this until I went to the edit and story lab uh, at Sundance. But I think that fundamentally artists are people who feel compelled to express themselves, 
what they see in the world, right? And I, I have, I think, been an artist my whole life without necessarily realizing it, but I, I have that compulsion. And um, writing was always my medium, but when I got sick, all I can do was lay in bed, look at photographs on Pinterest, and um, and watch movies, sometimes with the sound turned really, really low. Um, because you're very sensitive to sound. Exactly, yes. And, and so I think I started to become much more visual, um, in part because that became my only way of accessing and thinking about the world. But I grew up in movie theaters. I've I've seen I, I think probably from I would say the age of six to sixteen, I saw every feature that got, you know, a kind of general release in, in yes. sort of commercial theaters was my experience or in too. indie theaters. Like my mom would take me to the movie theater on Saturday for like, you know, an afternoon showing or a matinee and then we would just like you know, take our one ticket and then go see three films, you know, <laughs> and every, every, every weekend we did that. Um, and so film has always been something that I've loved, but I, I grew up in, you know, like north of Orlando and it, it was something that, you know, where like, I think if you were really going to make it like, like, you know, it, it, success was becoming a dentist, you know, like, and, and film was, was sort of something that, um, I don't know. Other people did like films mm. grew on trees, and I never it never encouraged me, me that people make them, or that I could make them. So um, it it came out of necessity, but I also think that uh, I would never have tried to make a film had I not lost everything, because I think it would have been something that seemed too insane and too risky. Mm. Um, but once everything you think you are is taken from you, you sort of, at least for me, I felt like, well, I have nothing left to lose. So why not, you know, mm. why not just go for it? And I have no idea how I'm going to do it, but um, it needs to happen. And so I knew I would find a way. So the way you got it financially started is you did a uh, crowdfunding campaign, which uh, you were telling me about on a panel the other day. And um, I jokingly said, because you're so successful, don't try this at home. And uh, and you said, no, you should try this at, at home. So tell me about that campaign. Yeah. So um, this was, I guess, in 2013. And, you know, I, at that point, I mean, I, I don't think I even knew a single filmmaker. I um, reached out to my sister-in-law who um, had gone to film school and sort of, you know, was saying, you know, I really want to make this movie, but I'm too weak to hold a camera and I also want to shoot myself. So how do I do that? And, and we talked in circles for 15 minutes until finally she was like, oh, you mean you want to hire a DP? And I was <laughs> like, oh yeah, what's, what's that? I think, I think that, I think that sounds right. So, I went on um, a listserv and I said I need to hire a DP um, and I found um, this amazing young filmmaker named Kieran Tatanvis who came on to help me uh, kind of shoot the campaign and I would basically, you know, I, I knew I wanted to sort of shoot six days and I would shoot one day each month, crash in bed for 29 days and then do it again the next month. So I shot one day a month for six months, and then we put together this fundraising trailer. And I uh, had a goal of raising about 
$50,000 and I was really afraid that I wouldn't make make it. And uh, within about 48 hours, we reached our goal and ended up raising about $212,000. And that to me was really a reflection of how many people felt the same way I did. Mm. How many, like, I think fundamentally I, I wanted to tell this story because I felt like I didn't have a story, that I was that sick. Like my whole life, I when I wanted to try to understand myself, I would read books and watch films and they would help me understand the world in some way and and how to feel about things and how to think about things. And I didn't have a narrative for this experience and that was really lonely in a way that I could never have imagined. And the campaign showed me that there were thousands and thousands of people who felt the same way, that their story had been stolen, there was no, nothing there to replace it. So um, that was how we put the financing together to, to start the film. And I think that was how we were able to start bringing on people you know, in the documentary industry because it wasn't just me saying the story matters. It was thousands of people who were saying we're waiting for the story to be told. So you had uh, this young camera woman who was, a, sounds like a key person. Were there other kind of key people that helped open the door to, to realize this film? Yeah. So um, the Kickstarter campaign really, I mean, it was sort of the funding was incredible, obviously, and but it was also a sort of a side effect of of just the the kind of love um, for the story. And but the, I think one of the most significant things to come out of that campaign was that I met um, Debbie Hoffman, who is um, you know a very well known filmmaker. She directed it along with her partner Francis Reed. Um, Long Night's Journey and Today. I also directed um, Complaints of a Dutiful Daughter, editor of the Times of Harvey Milk. So like a, a really accomplished filmmaker. And uh, she, someone had shared the campaign with her on Facebook. And so she Facebook messaged me and said, you know, um, hi, I'm a filmmaker and I want to help you. And I remember thinking, okay, yeah, whatever. Uh, because at that point I had everyone and their cousin was emailing me like, can I compose your film? Can I, can I, can I, can I shoot for you? And um, um, but she, I, I looked her up and I, and then I was like, oh my God. <laughs> um, and then we had a conversation and she really took me under wing and started mentoring me and just was this amazing person to help me find my way into this. And I think the most profound thing that she gave me was just helping me to trust my instincts um, and also keeping me to an extremely high standard. So every time I thought I was done, she said, no, 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 Jen, the bar, the bar is up here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she was really the best mentor. And uh, the campaign allowed me to start to then hire um, and put together teams around the world to tell what came to be a sort of global story. So uh, I brought on my producer, Lindsay Dryden, um, who's based in the UK, Trish Gillespie, who's based in New York, um, Anna Yort in Denmark. And we built, we hired these crews who would be able to go and shoot in the field because I couldn't. Um, and I fairly early on, I realized that it was just not a good idea. I would try to go on shoots and it was just much too costly for me. So you've described the way lots of people who suffer from this sometimes face a medical community that doesn't understand it or is in outright denial of it. People, friends and family who have confusion around it. Um, and you document uh, a lot of this in, in your film. Can you you know, give a couple examples that would sort of illustrate for, for someone who hasn't seen the film or hasn't encountered this, the sense of opposition that sometimes people face? Yeah, so I think, um, 
Yeah, I've interviewed a lot of people with this disease, and uh, I think for me, whether you're a man or a woman, there's this sort of universal sense of um, disbelief. I mean, I think everybody sees at least one doctor, if not many, many doctors who say, you're not really sick. It's all in your head. <laughs> um, I know women who've been told, you know, oh, just what you really need is a new haircut or um, you're just depressed. Maybe you should divorce your husband. Um, there was one doctor who took my husband Omar in another room and said, you know, it's okay if you leave her. So uh, there's, I don't know any other disease where this happens or where suddenly you get this and sort of your, your relationships and your, even your memories become suspect. I mean, my, my neurologist told me that all of my symptoms were being caused by a distant trauma that I couldn't remember, which I found really convenient because he didn't know what it was either, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so it's it like, suppose a trauma. Um, and, and so I, I, I think there's that, that kind of low-grade disbelief. I think, I think the, there are other patients who I think can be harmed very severely by medical advice. So um, the most common uh, treatment for this is something called graded exercise. And uh, there are forms of physical therapy that can help patients, but you have to stay within those sort of metabolic limits. Um, if we go into basically what's called anaerobic metabolism, which is, you know, if you run marathons, like you, you know that there's sort of this space where you go where you're just kind of um, generating, generating lactic acid. And if you go to that place, like you're going to crash. And so it has to be done very carefully, but patients are being prescribed exercise without any sense of what those underlying dynamics are. And um, the consequence of that can be really catastrophic. I know people who were only very mildly affected who then, after exercising, became homebound for essentially the rest of their lives. Hmm. And so what you know, scientists and experts in the field are starting to say is that prescribing exercise without a sense of what those limits are is you know, akin to telling diabetics to eat more sugar. Um, and then I think one of the things that I found most shocking once I started to really dig deeper into the history of this community is that there have been a number of patients, um, children as well as adults in the U.S. Um, and all across Europe who have been taken from their homes um, forcibly by police and put into foster care or put into institutions um, with the idea that they are suffering with a psychosomatic illness and that it's their family environment that's causing this. So we see a particularly dramatic example of this in Denmark in the film, but you're saying that's not a singular episode. No, not at all. Um, I know of um, a, a teenage boy in North Carolina who was taken for a year from his family and put in foster care. A patient of Dr. Klimas's was uh, a child was put into foster care and they had to go to court um, and that family fled the state because they just were too afraid. Um, in Europe, there was a case in Germany, a case in Norway, dozens of cases in, in the UK. So this does happen. And, um, you know, I mean, it's akin to sort of what we used to say about autism, right? We used to say that, you know, children developed autism because their mothers were too cold. Um, Refrigerator mothers. Exactly. Um, and we also told 
sort of psychological stories about multiple sclerosis, right? That was hysterical paralysis until the CAT scan. Um, epileptics used to be put into mental institutions until the EEG. And so I think medicine has always had this hard time dealing with illnesses that could not be objectively measured, meaning the doctor can't see that you're sick from some type of third-party measurement. Um, I think medicine has a hard time with illnesses where we have to believe the patient and believe what they're telling us about what their experience is. In Unrest, the other main character is Jennifer's husband, Omar Wasso. He teaches at Princeton and was a co-founder of the website Black Planet. He's been interviewed about technology on CNN, Oprah, and The Today Show. As Jennifer's illness worsened, his career took a different turn as he devoted more time to her as a caregiver. As the years went by, they came to accept their lives were different from their peers. Here's a moment in the film when Omar has a conversation with Jennifer in hushed tones. There are moments where I see us through other people's eyes, and somehow that's much sadder than when I'm just kind of living our life together. This is normal for us. Like it's, you, it's so normal. And it's only when other people observe how not normal it is that I'm, I'm forced to recalibrate and sit with how hard this is. You know what it is about being observed? It's that people feel sorry for me. And I don't know why that... Baby, I'm so sorry. It's a nerve. I asked Jennifer about their willingness to record those emotional moments. I mean, I think that... um... I think part of what allowed me to go there is that I'm directing the film. So I I always knew that if at the end of the day, if there was something that I really didn't want to share, I could, um, you know, choose to remove it from the cut. Right. And but I knew that while we were filming, I wanted to present as authentic and real an expression of what the truth is. And that I would worry about the edit later, you know. And so in the moment, we were shooting constantly, um, sometimes on my iPhone, sometimes with our camera, sometimes with our DP. And I think there are a couple of reasons why I chose to do that. I mean, first, I wanted to make a really good film. And I I thought that for me, like the films that I love are the ones that are emotionally honest. And I, I... Whenever something's not true, I feel it. <laughs> you know, I, I can feel when I'm not being shown the truth. And so it was really important for me to sort of hold myself to that standard as a filmmaker. Um, but I also just know, you know, one of the things that I found early on as I started interviewing people is that there is no, there is no pain, there is no experience that is yours alone, right? Like there are so many people who whether they have this disease or another condition, have had the experience of having some type of asteroid hit their lives that throws everything into question. You know, we will all one day be caregivers to someone we love or be cared for. And that's just a part of what it is to be human. And I think that we 
often hide that pain and that grief. Mm. And one of the things that I learned that was really what helped me to survive was that in that process of interviewing, I got to feel like I wasn't alone. I got to hear someone else's story and to know that what they were feeling, what they were afraid of, what haunted them, what what gave them hope, they were the same things that I was sort of struggling with. And that I think in some ways also gave me that courage, you know, and 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 I began to sort of see that when these things are shared, they stop being so so terrifying. And and so I think both Omar Omar and I felt like, you know, if that private pain could help other people, then we wanted to share it. And in the sharing, it could transform it into something that wasn't just loss. It could make it something positive and maybe even something beautiful. So for my last question, we're recording this in the week when you first presented this film to an audience at uh, the Sundance Film Festival. Probably listeners will be hearing this several months later. But can you tell me what that experience has been like showing it to audiences finally? Oh, man. Um, it's been remarkable. I, I, Every screening has been different. And I think one of the things that I'm realizing is that it's resonating with audiences in a deeper way than I could have imagined or thought. Like I, I knew what it would mean to my community, but I didn't know what it might mean to others. So for example, at the premiere, um, there was one young, young woman who stood up and said, you know, I just got into this, you know, film on the wait list. I didn't even know what it was about. And I've been sitting here shaking and crying the whole time because this is my story and I've been sick for years and I didn't know what I had. And you know, my doctor told me I was crazy. My family thinks I'm just lazy and I'm not. And now I know what I have. And I mean, that is what I, I hoped for with this film. And the response and the emotion has just been incredible. And especially from, from I've been meeting a lot of young women here, with a variety of conditions um, who you would never know they were sick. I mean, you know, beautiful, vibrant women who are coming up to me and saying, you know, I deal with chronic pain or I deal with this autoimmune disease and I'm just getting worse and worse and I'm afraid that my family's going to have to take care of me. And I saw this film and now I know it's going to be okay. Um, and if I could give that type of hope, you know, to, to other people out of my experience, then I think, I do think all of this will have been worth it. So it's been really incredible being able to share that with audiences. And I'm, I'm excited for the film to get out there and for more people to see it. I want to thank Jennifer Brea for speaking with me. You can watch Unrest streaming on iTunes, Amazon, and other platforms. If you enjoy pure nonfiction, I invite you to listen to our short-form podcast called Documentary of the Week. Every Friday, we take two minutes to recommend a new film. Documentary of the Week is produced by WNYC. You can subscribe for free on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, visit wnyc.org slash docs. Thanks to the Pure Nonfiction team, series producer, Sarah Modo, sound mixer, Tom Micah, web designer, Cross Strategy, and social media master, Jordan Smith. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. 
You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.